listeners. I'm Carla Golden, and I'm here with Ethan McCurdy. We are top of the noggin, that is N-O-G-N, which stands for Neuroscience Outreach Group at NYU. And we're bringing you the latest and most exciting breakthroughs in neuroscience, with an emphasis on new studies, cutting-edge technology, and neuroscience and culture. Today, we're going to go over a neuron paper published this past October titled, Whom 2 Shapes the Transcriptome in Developing Axons Through Retention of Target mRNAs in the Cell Body. In this paper, Jose Martinez and colleagues identified a cell regulatory mechanism that controls where protein coding messages, called mRNAs, are sent within sensory neurons. The authors found that interfering with a protein that binds mRNAs and prevents their localization to the axon impairs axon growth and branching in the developing nervous system. This protein is called Familia 2, or FUM2 for short, and it's the first time it was described in this context of neurons. Stay tuned until the end of the episode where we will have some Q&A with Jose. Before we get into this article, it's worth pointing out that neurons arguably have the most complicated structures of any cell type. This has been most famously rendered in the drawings of Ramoni Cajal, who captured the striking, elaborate branching formations over 100 years ago. Underlying the beauty of neurons is a basic question of functionality. How do axonal and dendritic projections grow? How is branching regulated? The axons of motor neurons, for example, can grow up to a meter away from the cell body, the biochemical engine of the cell. This is a huge distance for the cell body to overcome in order to regulate local outposts at the fringes of the neuron. To help regulate events in the periphery, local mechanisms such as the production of proteins at distal, dendritic, and axonal eminences has been shown to play an essential role in the health and function of neurons by allowing an instantaneous response to changing cues in the environment. It is important for both neuron structure and function that protein coding messages, the mRNA, be translated into protein in the correct part of the neuron. This process is called local translation, and it allows these compartments of the neuron to quickly adapt to their specific role in their immediate Since some proteins need to be produced in a distal part of the cell, the axon, how do the messages, the mRNAs that code for these proteins, arrive there? What determines whether these messages are supposed to remain in the cell body or be shipped to the axons? It's known that mRNAs are packaged into granules called ribonucleoprotein particles, or RNPs, by RNA-binding proteins. RNA-binding proteins, or RBPs, recognize specific sequences of mRNA termed zip codes and shift them to distal parts of the neuron, either to the axons or dendrites. Think of these zip codes like the ones we use to ship packages. The neuron knows which protein coding messages it wants to send to each location because they're labeled with a certain zip code contained in that message. Though we generally understand that this process is taking place, we still don't know the identities of many of these codes. Using an array of genetic and biochemical approaches, Martinez and colleagues colleagues, asked what types of zip codes are present in the protein coding messages that are localized in developing axons. They found, one, that having a Pumilio zip code, or a zip code that PUM2 would bind to, prevents protein coding messages from entering axons. Two, that this is a mechanism for controlling the translation of proteins and axons. And three, that this was important that the messages not be shipped to the axon because they would disrupt its development. So how did they do this? Using a transcriptome from developing mouse sensory neurons, which is essentially a large record of these protein coding messages, 
The authors ran a computational program developed by the Tavazoi Lab at Columbia called FIRE, which identified the most overrepresented or underrepresented binding motifs in axon or cell body enriched transcripts. One of these motifs, corresponding to the Pamilio binding element, was both underrepresented in axons and overrepresented in cell bodies. This suggested that the Pamilio binding element directs mRNA to the cell body. To directly test this hypothesis, the authors decided to make a reporter construct based on a well-characterized mRNA called beta-actin, whose zip code ordinarily drives axonal localization. This reporter had an open reading frame coding for GFP, followed by the three prime untranslated region, or UTR, of beta-actin, which contains a zip code for axonal localization. When they expressed this reporter by itself, the authors found that GFP ended up in the axons. However, when they flanked the UTR with Pamilia binding elements, the transcripts were retained in the cell body. Importantly, a construct with a mutated version of the Pamilia binding elements was still localized to axons. Using a modified version of the proximity ligation assay to label newly translated proteins, the authors also found that the addition of Pamilio binding elements resulted in a marked decrease in GFP protein synthesis in axons. Similarly, this was not observed with a mutated Pamilio binding element construct. Next, the authors investigated whether the presence of the Pamilio binding element was sufficient to mediate binding of PUM2 to reporter mRNAs with RNA immunoprecipitation followed by qPCR. They found that only reporter mRNA that contained Pamilio binding elements co-immunoprecipitated with PUM2, suggesting that the presence of Pamilio binding elements was indeed sufficient. Using immunofluorescent stainings, the authors found that the distribution of PUM2 is restricted to the cell bodies of sensory, hippocampal, and cortical neurons, which provides a spatial explanation for why transcripts that are bound by PUM2 are retained in the cell body. The importance of PUM2 for polarized mRNA localization had already been underscored with the computational analysis FIRE, which suggested that PUM2 was important for the somatic enrichment of messages. Using a modified FIRE analysis on ribosome profiling data to look at translated transcripts, the authors found that the expression of PUM2 is correlated with mRNAs that are translated during early and late development. This is to say that at early stages of development, the PUM2 motif was underrepresented in mRNAs that are translated early and overrepresented in transcripts that are translated later. The authors validated this further by looking at levels of PUM2 immunofluorescence in Western blots. In other words, the expression of PUM2 appears to be tied to the localization of axonal mRNA during neural development. Next, the authors wanted to know what happened to mRNA localization on a transcriptome-wide level when you take away PUM2. Using viral shRNA constructs to knock down PUM2, they observed significant deregulation of mRNA localization, with an increase in the levels of axonal mRNAs containing Pamilio binding elements. However, knocking down PUM2 did not change overall mRNA expression in the cell bodies, indicating that this effect was not a result of an overall change in transcript abundance. In addition, focusing on transcripts specifically recognized by PUM2, they were able to return axonal localization of mRNA targets by preventing PUM2 from binding to them. Together, this all suggests that PUM2 controls mRNA localization by retaining transcripts in the cell body without regulating mRNA stability. Finally, the authors evaluated whether PUM2 knockdown would affect axon development in vivo. 
To do this, they delivered PUM2 shRNA to neuroprogenitors and layer 2-3 pyramidal neurons using in utero electroporation, and they scored the number of axons that projected to the contralateral side of the cortex by examining midline crossing. They also looked at branching by tracking the fluorescence of the GFP-positive neurons, hence those that received knockdown or control virus, in the white matter. In both cases, PUM2 knockdown relative to control resulted in decreased axon growth and branching. I think we covered it, Ethan. <laughs> I think we did too. The authors pretty exhaustively show that PUM2 binds to specific mRNA targets and limits their ability to be transported into axons and then be transited into proteins there. Um, yes. Before reading this paper, if someone asked me to explain why some mRNA are in the cell body and others are in axons or dendrites, I would have been able to say that some mRNA have specific zip codes that guide them to a specific compartment. But I don't think I would have guessed that there's a zip code that limits where they can go, you know? That's I thought that was a very cool development of the paper. They come they come across this protein Pumileo two that pretty much excludes axons from entering. I mean, excludes mRNA transfers from entering the axon. And you know, the paper itself provides a wealth of uh, sequencing data with their very careful um, um, transcriptomics that they that they do throughout. I think another thing I like about this paper is it's it's interesting for people who are thinking about the compartmentalization of neurons and what the different uh, you, you know areas of, of the cell are doing. But it's also something that can extend beyond neurobiology. I'm not sure where the pumilio binding element is going to turn up next, but I'm sure it will be informative for anyone who's interested in how mRNAs are making it to different parts of cells, whether you're looking at neurons or you're looking at some other um, you know, some other cell type. So I think it's interesting both for neurobiologists and cell biologists fieldwide. Yeah, absolutely. And especially cells that have so many different kinds of compartments that would need to perform different functions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shall we have on Jose? Yeah, let's bring him on. All right, everyone, we now have Jose on the line. Uh, Jose, welcome to the Top of the Noggin podcast. How I'm doing you? very well. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited uh, to talk to you about this uh, very interesting findings that we had. Fantastic. Uh, for listeners, uh, Jose Martinez received his PhD from Columbia University in the lab of Ulrich Kingst. We were former colleagues in the lab. Jose is now a resident physician at UNC Chapel Hill. I should also say that he got his MD from Columbia after finishing his PhD. Uh, you know, just a quick fact, a fun fact about Jose. He's a, he's a fantastic baker of breads and a, just a mean uh, maker of cocktails and an all-around wonderful person. So, Jose, thanks again for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. <laughs> it sounds like we have a lot to learn from you. <laughs> so, we like to start off our Q&As by asking how you got to where you are. And it sounds like you have maybe have an interesting journey. Uh, what's your background as a scientist? So my background, um, so after moving to Florida, um, I went to the University of Miami for my undergrad degree. Um, there I was working on my molecular biology and neuroscience uh, majors. And I became interested in science uh, when I started working in um, the lab of uh, Richard Rotundo. There we were working on uh, looking at the regulation of acetylcholinesterase in the neuromuscular junction. Um, and that was the first time that I actually 
sort of became aware of how RNA binding proteins work. And I was fascinated by the fact that uh, you can you could quickly regulate um, um, how a cell behaves by regulating the expression of certain proteins. Um, so after that, um, I went to Colombia to do my PhD. And after trying different projects, I finally ended up in the lab of Ulrich Hens, uh, going back again to studying how RNA is regulated. Um, and, and there I had um, some kind of very sort of serendipitous finding, uh, although maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but um, I was very excited to, to get back and, and start working on familiar RNA binding proteins um, during my work there. Jose, actually, I wanted to, wanted to follow up on that exact point. At what point did you originally become interested in studying Pamelios, uh, especially PUM2? So actually, going back to my undergrad degree, um, when we were looking at the regulation of acetylcholinesterase, uh, we had noted that at the time, the 3' UTR of um, acetylcholinesterase contains some of the Pumilio binding elements. Um, so we worked on how Pumilio can actually regulate um, both the translation and localization of that mRNA in the neuromuscular junction. Um, but during that time, um, I was also aware that Pumilio itself has some, some of these Pumilio binding elements in, in its own 3' UTR. So I was working on how Pumilio could potentially be regulating its own expression. After I left that mm -hmm. lab and I went to do my uh, PhD, I had actually sort of tried to do very different projects uh, not necessarily working with RNA. And when I ended up in the Hanks lab, I, I was trying to go back to, to working with RNA and using some computational tools to look more systematically at what kind of elements might be regulating mRNA localization in neurons. And there was where I had that very uh, serendipitous finding that the familiar winding element was actually uh, one of the strongest element um, that seemed to be sort of informative uh, about the regulation of those mRNAs in neurons. So I was actually very happy when I found that uh, because... Was this when you were working with that computational right. program? Right, and at that time I was doing uh, some sort of de novo um, algorithm. So I wasn't sure what would come out of that. In fact, a lot of the other elements that, that uh, I found with fire um, were previously not characterized. Um, so it would have been very difficult to find um, essentially what other RNA binding proteins might be associated with those elements. Uh, so when I found that the Pumilio was the strongest one, it made my life much easier. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we didn't talk about this in the episode, but you know, when you say Pumilio is plural, in addition to PUM2, you also looked at another protein, PUM1. What is what is PUM1 and how does it differ from so PUM2? So both PUM1 and PUM2 are members of the Pumilio uh, family of RNA binding proteins. And this is actually a family of RNA binding proteins that is highly conserved across different organisms, maybe even going back to unicellular organisms such as yeast. Um, I think what in, is interesting is that in invertebrates like Drosophila, there's only one Pumilio. Um, uh, which actually has been uh, studied extensively and shown that it can regulate mRNA um, stability as well as um, uh, synapsis formation. 
uh, in that organism. But when you come to vertebrates, there are two pumilios, pum1 and pum2. They both share the same homology domain, which is the RNA binding region. And interestingly, this domain is about 91 uh, to 97% identical across different vertebrates. So theoretically, this both, both of these proteins can bind the same targets. Um, what I think is very interesting about the two different pumilios is that, um, like we were looking in the paper, even though they do share the same RNA binding um, um, regions, uh, they can actually be expressed at, expressed at different times in the cells and both localized to different regions of the cell. So in the case of neurons, we found that PUM1 seemed to be very restricted to the axonal compartment and PUM2 seemed to be more localized in the um, somatic compartment. Um, and more recently, uh, I was looking back and seeing whether there are other cases where PUM1 and PUM2 might have uh, different activities. And actually there was a recent paper in stem cells where pumilios are known to work on um, stem cell renewal. And, and actually they found that even though they both have a, a lot of targets in common, PUM1 was actually promoting stem cell differentiation and PUM2 is promoting uh, mm -hmm. self renewal. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's very, I think that's a very good question. Uh, even though the proteins share the same homology domain, they're not necessarily doing the same type of work. Uh, with cell. That's very interesting. Given that role of PUM2, did you expect when you started the study that um, knocking it down would impair axon growth and regeneration? Um, so actually, yeah, that was a very um, good question. I, I wasn't sure what to expect when, when I was going to knock down PUM2. Um, all of the findings seem to indicate that knocking down PUM2 would definitely have an effect. Um, but the issue is that since PUM2 can have thousands of targets, uh, I always worried about non-specific effects. Um, so, so I wasn't sure uh, whether it was just gonna be impairing axon growth or maybe even having more axon growth than, than you were usually seeing uh, due to just misregulation of the pathways. Um, so, so that was, an, I think, an interesting finding that the overall effect seemed to be uh, that it would impair axon growth and regeneration. Yeah, why do you think that is? Uh, I think that's a really good question also. And I think it also highlights one of the weaknesses of our, our uh, project um, that we haven't really addressed that well. Um, and I think there are different mechanisms. So based at least on some of the studies that we did, um, for some reason, it looks like axons at an early stage don't like to have the targets that contain the pumilio binding element. Mm. Um, so this regulating pumilio will result on, uh, we, as we showed, uh, that this target uh, mRNAs will be present in axons. Um, and I think the two competing mechanisms are maybe even uh, that could be happening at the same time is one, uh, axons have very limited real estate. So if you have mRNAs there that are not supposed to belong there, they could be competing with those other mRNAs that are needed um, to maintain that axon growth phase. Um, and then the other mechanism is that there might be some targets, uh, some of the ones that we looked at, like 
JFK3 Beta and L1 CAMP, which are known to regulate how axons grow. So expressing those uh, targets at the wrong time could also lead to stunting axon growth and regeneration. But I think finding out exactly the targets and pathways that uh, that are being misregulated when you knock down Pumilio is something that still needs to be worked out. You had this assay where you use the beta actin three prime UTR to you know target GFP to the axon, and in a sense, it seems that you have sort of vicariously developed this mechanism where you add Pumilio binding elements to a transcript and it changes their localization. I mean, do you do you know of any genetic tool that's being developed that's using Pumilio binding elements to prevent uh, transcript localization to different parts so, of the cell? Yeah, the, at this time, I don't think of, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any tool that, that has been developed yet. Um, I think one possibility is to use the CRISPR to insert um, PBEs in the three prime UTRs of mRNAs endogenously, and then uh, see if that has an effect in their localization to axons. Mm-hmm. I think that could be a very interesting experiment. But one of the limitations with that tool would be that it would be very dependent on the expression of Pumilio in the cell. Um, so as we showed, uh, if you include more Pumilio binding elements, you're more likely to succeed at, at doing that. Um, but if, in order for it to to work better, you might even need to um, express more Pumilio in the cells, and that could have some all other non-specific um, consequences. But but I think it might be an inter- interesting tool to use CRISPR uh, for that purpose. Yeah, that makes sense. Another question about your personal journey. (laughs) As both an MD and PhD, does your basic science and medical background inform each other or influence the way you think about practicing medicine? Yes, definitely. I think doing both have have been very helpful for my own personal growth and informing both of either medicine or or science. Um, I think the one thing that is common to both is, uh, is like the idea of problem solving and forming hypotheses. Uh, so having that scientific yeah. background really helps me when I'm trying to figure out cases and what's going on. Um, but also having that scientific background helps you um, to create new hypotheses about problems in medicine that uh, people are not looking at the same way that, that, that you are. Um, and at the same time, being in the clinic has informed me about um, some cool problems that otherwise I wouldn't be aware um, that I think would be important uh, solving. Um, so I think really doing both have, has really been been great for, for me. Yeah, that's great that it gets you on the front lines of seeing what gaps need to be filled, of like, you know, what problems people face daily that we just aren't addressing in science. That's very cool. Right, and I think uh, now... Uh, uh, I think now it's, very, it's a very exciting time because we have so many new tools that, that are being developed um, where we can actually be more precise about the treatments that we use in medicine. Um, and all of this has been thanks to, to all of these scientific advances. Uh, so I'm very excited um, about the future, uh, how, to com- how combining medicine and science will um, continue to, to help us treat a lot of diseases that otherwise have been uh, not very well treated for the past uh, several decades. 
Yeah, great. Well, great. And thank you, Jose, for your time and for joining us on this episode of Top of the Noggin. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. Actually, sorry, Jose, I I cut you off there. And and I just uh, just hate to do that on that note. (laughs) All I had... All I was going to say is, like, thank you so much for having me. And I think it's great that you guys are doing a po- podcast. They are, uh, I have become very fond of listening to podcasts. And uh, it's nice to know that there is a uh, nice podcast to disseminate uh, neuroscience research. Thank you. All right. Well, thank so you very much. And um, I, I, keep, I, I look forward to hearing more from you guys. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Please join us next time for another exciting discussion of a recent neuroscience article and some Q&A. Awesome.